episode of Common Sense, the podcast. Hope you guys didn't uh, get too carried away over the weekend and everybody's ready for the Super Bowl. But uh, this week, we've got one of my good friends on here. You guys, welcome Brandon Byers to the show. How's it going? What's up, man? Not much, brother. Same stuff, different diaper. Same stuff, different diaper. (laughs) Well, Brandon, for those of you that don't know, Brandon and I are connections through Industrial Cigar Company. Brandon used to be the GM over there. Indeed. Until he decided to move on to bigger, better things, because I think he got, what you guys called in the episode you did, Hurting Cats. He got tired of hurting cats, I think (laughs) is what you guys called it. Yeah, yeah. Decided to uh, take a step back. Uh, got a grandson now, so even though I look way too young for that, but, I mean, absolutely. Uh, got my first grandson and getting to spend time with him and supporting the wife and her business, and it, it's been a nice little pr- reprieve. At least now you have a reason to have all those little rubber duckies in there your you Jeep. <laughs> well, Brandon, why don't you, for those of you that the people that don't know you very well or don't know what you know your story here, why don't you? Uh, Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, which you know, what your background is, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm originally from Waxahachie, Texas, so just south of Dallas. I love that. <laughs> You're like the first person I know that is legitimately from Waxahachie. <laughs> My father-in-law, who is Jordanian, when they first moved over here, like that, like became their like running joke. That's like literally what they tell people because <laughs> nobody knows, or at least most people don't, where Waxahachie is. <laughs> so they all say they're from Waxahachie. I think it's the funniest thing in the world. Like, you know, it's like foreigners that come to America when they like decide to pick out an American name. It's like they just pick whatever that starts with the same letter as their <laughs> God-given name. You know. Like, so it, I just think it's so funny that they pick, like, Waxahachie of all places. Like, <laughs> I've been trying to find him one of those T-shirts that says, like, I'm from Waxahachie. Uh-huh. Just yeah. Like, you know, well, you hear it most of the time. It's Waxahachie or yeah. Waxahoochie. And, I mean, I've heard all sorts of different variations. But, uh, no, my mother uh, grew up there. My grandfather built their house out there. And mom went to school there. Aunt, uncle. I had some of their teachers when I went through high school. And so yeah. uh, they just recently sold that house. And so... We don't have any more connections there, but it'll always be home. It'll always be hometown. Yeah. So, but no, uh, Waxahachie, Texas, uh, graduate. Uh, after I graduated, I actually uh, went to community college for a little while out in uh, Louisville, Corinth area. Okay. It was uh, North Central Texas College, and uh, while I was there, I was working as a jailer for Denton County, and just trying to get some law enforcement experience. Uh, law enforcement was always very interesting to me is what I kind of wanted to do and in the course of doing that I met my wife Megan and after three months we got engaged and after a few months after that we got married and uh, coincidentally this month we'll be celebrating our 20th year 20 year anniversary that's awesome congratulations thank you we just had our 10 years so I know that's (laughs) 20 seems just so far away you know blink of an eye brother it's just like with kids before before you know it it's all they're all grown up and you don't know where the time went. But, yeah, uh, I know, because like when we were talking about it, all of a sudden it was like, man, it's really been 10 years. Like, and then you start thinking, well, how long did we date before? And then, like, you're like, man, wow, all right, yeah, that did fly by. The only thing you don't want to do is tell, oh, God, it's felt like forever. <laughs> <laughs> forever. <laughs> it's only been 20? Are you kidding me? No. Uh, no, I met my wife. And uh, in the process of doing that, I actually decided to go in the military. And it was, it See, was one of those. I think it's crazy that you guys. I don't know how many, I don't think I've ever heard this before that like 
the person got married before they uh-huh. went into the military. Yep, yep. Yeah, it was, you know, she wasn't uh, completely on board with it at first. Uh, her, her reaction was, well, if I wanted a guy who was in the military, I'd have married a guy who was in the military. So it was kind of like, I can't oh, imagine. okay, so is that like one of those, yes, you're cool with it, or no, like I'm going to have to sell you on it, or what, what are we talking here? And uh, But she, she knew where my passion was, and uh, so I actually joined the Air Force. My dad was an Air Force vet, as well as my mom's dad, and my dad's dad was in the Navy. And so I think I uh, had a cousin was in the Navy, got another cousin that was in the Marines. So we've, we've got all the branches except for a uh, National Guard checked off on the box. But uh, no, I went to the United States Air Force and I joined as a, a security forces officer or a cop, basically. I was an MP. And so, you know, went to San Antonio, went to Lackland, did both my basic training and uh, uh, tech school is what they call it, basically, where you learn how to do your job. And uh, yeah. From there, we went to Las Vegas. Went Vegas. to Nellis Air Force Base. I know. Oh, dirty you get job, all the rough assignments yeah, right out there. Dirty gate. job, but somebody had to do it. So, yeah. honestly, it was the last base I thought I'd get. It was one of those dream sheet type of deals. Like, yeah, I'll go ahead and check it off. And ended up getting it. Uh, one of the reasons was, is it, it was, at the time, it was a Priority One resource base. So, it, it had uh, nukes on it. And so, uh, they had their own unit for security forces cops that would man that. And they were 100% manned, so you were non-deployable and everything like that. And so that's why I got over there, but I didn't end up being assigned there. So I got assigned to the, the regular security forces unit. And within uh, five to six months, I was already tasked to deploy. And this was 2005, 2006 era. So it was, it was one of those, you know, you knew it was going to happen type of deal. Yeah. It wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. It happened a little bit sooner than what I thought it would. Yeah. And so initially I was pretty damn scared. I was originally tasked to go to Afghanistan. And uh, after about, I think it was about a week after I got tasked and I had my date when I was going to have to report for training and everything, and it was several months away. And so uh, I got a phone call one night from my, uh, from my superior, uh, from my sergeant. He said, well, I got good news and I got bad news. I'm like, okay, well, what's the good news? He goes, good news is you don't have to go to work tonight. I'm like, okay, cool, I'm liking this. What's the bad news? Bad news is tomorrow, 0700, reporting to supply. And instead of going to uh, Afghanistan, you're going to Iraq. And so you got to report tomorrow for supply. And then in two, three days, you're going to leave for pre-deployment training in, uh, uh, in Washington, in Seattle. Oh, and wow. And so I was like, yeah, that, that's pretty shitty. <laughs> it's pretty shitty news. And honestly, it didn't scare me as much as me thinking that I was then going to have to go in the other room and tell Megan that I was deploying way sooner and that, you know, starting tomorrow was when I was going to have to start that process and uh yeah it went over as about as well as i thought it would you know turd and punch bowl type of deal and uh it was it was one of those scenarios of well they can't do that yeah yeah they can't yeah, do that they, they did do me. that so <laughs> but uh you know the pre-deployment was uh it was grueling but it was awesome and yeah because you had to be close to like the base where the that's close to area 51 and stuff right oh yeah oh yeah uh there was actually another uh, Air Force base called Crete Air Force Base that was even closer. That's okay. the closest base uh, to Area 51. It's hilarious because there's a lot of, a lot of trailer parks out there, and when you work out there, sometimes you got to go and help them out because if they do a test flight on a drone or something like that and it crashes, you got guys in lawn chairs that just watch these things waiting for them to crash, and then they zip out there to go pick up whatever pieces they can. Yeah. And then later on, they go and raid a trailer park, get the classified pieces out of there. So it's hilarious to watch. But uh, no, Creech Air Force Base, I actually worked on there as well. But uh, 
you know, I, I actually ended up specializing in uh, the 50 caliber gunner. And so did really well there. Got uh, awarded at a certification and whatnot. And I ended up basically shooting myself in the foot kind of thing. Uh, once we deployed, we went to Camp Buka, Iraq. It was, uh, it's a largest, it was the largest detainee facility out in Iraq. And it was right around the area where the Gulf War was fought. It was right on the border of Kuwait. And so we went out there, and once we got out there, I got tasked to, uh, to be part of a, uh, an intel unit out there. Basically, it was uh, our job was outside the wire all day, every day. And basically, you roamed six different sectors looking for intelligence, and you looked for unexploded or- ordinances from that war and the Gulf War. So we found unexploded pineapple grenades. We found, uh, you know, uh, different mortars that never went off. So, uh, so wow. one of our jobs was to go out there, find it, and then like mark it on the satellite so that a ordnance team could come out there and dispose of it later on. And the scariest part was is that whole area has a lot of roaming Bedouins and stuff like that with sheep and camels and stuff, and they've got kids. And they knew that we were looking for stuff like that. So they knew where they were at, and you have these kids that would have a pineapple grenade. They're just tossing it up in the air like it's a ball walking up to you because they're, they're hoping to trade it for either water or for candy or batteries or something. And it was one of those situations that, you know, for those people that don't know, anything that doesn't explode is actually more volatile the older it gets. So you could throw it against a brick wall and nothing happened, but flick it and it could go off. And so Whoa. it was always so scary to see these kids just like, derp, derp. and so you'd go, whoa, 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 just put it down. Stop. I'll give you whatever you want. I got a whole case of MREs. Here you go. And uh, you learn real quick that, you know, expect the unexpected. And so I was actually a, a 50 cal turret gunner for the, uh, for the front vehicle or the rear vehicle. So we had a, a four truck man team. It was 12, 12 guys, three guys per truck. And so you had a 50 cal on the front, 50 cal on the back. And then you had a, a 249s or 240 and 249, which are also uh, automatic mini submachine guns in the middle. And so most of the time I was either the front gunner or sometimes a driver. And every now and then I'd be the, the rear driver. So I did five, five and a half months uh, of doing that. And on our first day out, the team that we were replacing uh, actually showed us all the different areas we would be patrolling and, you know, introduced us to some of the Bedouins and people they'd get intelligence from. And while we were there, we had to post security underneath a bridge because the Italians were actually leaving Iraq. They were pulling out. And so they had this several hour convoy of just stuff leaving and going in Kuwait. And so we were just sitting there and there was a local police unit that was coming through and somebody did something. I don't know what started it off, but they got ticked off. And before I knew it, we were in this standoff where everybody was pointing guns at everybody else. And, uh, you know, I had my, uh, 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 my M4, my little AR right here. I had my nine, my nine millimeter Beretta stuck to my chest. And then I already had my hands on the 50, so I whipped it around and pointed it at these two guys. And so it was one of those situations, he goes, that uh, I figured, okay, you know what? You can point that at me, but you're going to be red mist by the time I get to the other guy. And uh, I was scared shitless. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And before, um, you know, it, I think it was minutes. It felt like hours, but minutes later, everybody was standing down. We figured out, you know, someone just either flagged a weapon or something and before i knew it you know everybody was pointing guns at each other and we finally got it de-escalated and got it and i was thinking this is day one 
Yeah. This is day day one, and one. we're already you pulling know? guns on each other. Exactly. And I'm like, this this is going to be horrible. But uh, five and a half months later, I I loved that job. I really did. Uh, it was always exciting. You always had stuff. The only thing that really sucked was when you were looking for unexploded ordinances. As a gunner, you're the lookout driver. You're pretty much the lookout while we're going and securing routes. You're looking for wires sticking out, trash that could possibly be, you know, uh, uh, camouflage. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're looking for for roadside bombs and stuff like that. You know, dead carcasses that might have it in there. And so, uh, which is harder than you would think because the whole country honestly has trash everywhere they, they they don't have a waste disposal system like we we do and yeah. so literally there's just trash six feet high all over the place it smells like a toilet and there's trash everywhere so looking for wires or trash and whatnot you, you see it everywhere so everything looks like a damn bomb but every now and then you see something that might stick out so you you, you have to get them to stop and then you mark it but you have to be a hundred percent sure you can't call in a team for something that might be and it ended up not being yeah. So you have to be 100% sure. So somebody, we got to draw straws, and somebody's got to go out there and confirm that it is a device. And so you literally have to walk to it. And if it's a wire, you have to pull on the wire, and hopefully it'll pull all the way out of the ground. If you pull on it and it stops and it doesn't pull out, then, yeah, that's probably a device. And the only gear you have is is a vest and a helmet. And so... I drew that straw probably twice, and I remember thinking, you go out there, you take all your radio equipment off, and you go out there and you pull on this wire, or you're looking at this device to see if it's connected to anything, and especially when you're pulling on the wire, you kind of wince. You're like, as if that's going to do something if it goes off, you know? Yeah. You should have, I mean, should have just, just pulled on it. I can't you're believe that, like, with all our technology and stuff, like... We're literally drawing straws, playing paper, rock, scissors <laughs> to see who, who has to go yank on the damn cord. Yep. Or yep. pull the pin, whatever you want to call it. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, this was, this was 2005, 2006. And at that time, um, they didn't have the uh, uh, ballistic bubbles for turret gunners. I had an old-style crank turret that was busted that I had to use bungee cords to operate. And you just used your, your weight to sling it around. And uh, then you would lock it in place. And we had up-armored kits on our Humvees, but that was it. It was just a jungle Humvee that was spray-painted tan, and it was now a desert Humvee. We didn't even have the, the, the right uh, jacks. Once it was up-armored, it was about 14,000 pounds, and you had to use a different jack because the old one would, would, right. would crack. It would bust under the pressure. But we didn't have those jacks, so we had to do what was called a, uh, a combat tire change where you had to find a dune or a, like a little hill where you would run up on until the tire you needed was suspended in air and then you could change a tire but then you had to spend like an hour almost two hours getting it off of there so that you could keep on going because it's spinning exactly because it's, no it's, it's up in the air you know and so uh yeah we we did some we did some very uh unique uh fashioning of equipment and 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 rigging stuff to make sure it worked correctly so what if you don't mind me asking and we we can dive in this or not like what going into this like where do you stand religiously and did this change your outlook on god or anything like that i always wonder this with military guys especially when you're someone that's doing what you're doing i mean that's almost the same as the special forces operator that's like coming around a corner that knows he's going into action 
you know, you're going over there to pull a wire out of the ground that you don't know if is a live bomb on the other end of. Like that's that's got to change your yeah your your perspective definitely shifts. But no, um, you know, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian. My parents were Christians, and you know, I had faith. And me and my wife, you know, both. Christian faith and uh, every morning someone in the pod that I was sleeping in the guy that was there before me had like a a combat prayer that was posted up in his locker and he just left it there and that was the locker I got so I'd sit there and recite that every morning before I would leave Uh, and I you know I I figured everybody didn't really talk about it but we all had letters that we wrote especially uh, people that were on our on our unit because we were outside the wire versus people that were up in a tower or inside the wire that did patrol yeah. or, you know, um, it was just the likelihood of something happening was, was really, really high. So we all had our letter um, somewhere on us or, or in our, our go bag that we had with us. And, uh, you know, anyone that says that, oh, no, I wasn't scared at all is, is absolute lying. You know, it's an absolute yeah. liar. Because, uh, you know, every day that you go out there is just, you just don't know if you're going to come home. Yeah. And, uh so for me, it definitely it strengthened my faith, uh, especially every day that I got to come back and nothing had happened. You know, I was very grateful for, and it honestly made me grateful for the things that I had back at home. You know, I was making plans of what I was going to do with with my kid, and you know, things that I'd probably change up and yeah. you know do differently. And and so I, I definitely say your, your perspective shifts to something that's more. Um, appreciative and uh, you really understand how how good you have it uh, when you're in a situation in a third world country where people just don't and uh, you know you realize that you know your, your faith in whatever you believe in and the faith of your your family and your support system is 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 huge and so uh, luckily I was able to call my wife I, I called her constantly when we would talk or um, this was right when video conferencing was like first coming out, so you yeah. know it was spotty at best. But every now and then we'd get to do that, and uh, I got into a habit of uh, I would send her flowers all the time from you know a place, and you know just to to, to let her know that I was thinking of her and everything. And uh, um, but the thing was that I knew because of my job that the likelihood of something happening was was high. I wanted her to be prepared. Um, if something were to happen. And so I always told her, hey, if uh, a chaplain, commander, and the first sergeant come to your house, likelihood is uh, is that I'm something's seriously happened or I'm, I'm gone. Yeah. And so I would walk her through the process, and, you know, we had to get my will done before I left and everything like that. But I told her, I was like, you know, if the chaplain's there, it's it's really, really bad. If it's if the chaplain's not there, then likely it is I, I'm, I'm alive, um, but... Yeah. I've sustained some kind of injury for exactly. sure. So it was... Uh, is that something you just decided to do on your own, more or less? Or is that more, do you think, like something you're taught and that they they tell you you should prepare that way? You go through briefings. Um, you know, it, it's not like we were specifically told or, or trained to like, hey, make sure your spouse is no. It, this was more of a, a personal thing. Um, yeah. I wanted Megan to be prepared. To right. understand that, look, I'm not leaving with the intent of not coming back, but there is there's a chance. This is there the is a chance. You know, this was this was right when things were really getting hot and heavy. People were getting injured and killed all the time, especially in, in you know ground pounder work like I was doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just 
And I don't think a lot of people think of the Air Force yeah, as somebody doing I get that, that either. All the time. Um, you know, I mean, like this Navy, you expect to be on a boat. You know, Air Force, you expect them to be on an air base or something yep. like that. You don't expect that there's a foot soldier out there doing EOD stuff, you know, or oh, yeah. whatever. I mean, after 9 11, it was equal opportunity military. Everybody deployed. Didn't matter what you were doing. Now, you know, certain jobs, yeah, you really weren't going to see any combat. But, right. you know, I was a cop, I was a ground pounder. And yeah. so when we weren't securing bases, we were used as deployed troops to help secure bases out there and to gather intel. And you obviously you had your special forces teams like, um, you know, uh, combat troopers. You had uh, TACP, uh, yeah. you know, all sorts of different things. But, you know, we were used as an all around police force for either, you know, in the States, overseas or, you know, for convoy, convoy security, which is what the unit that I was a part of is, is what we did. Yeah. And so, but, you know, talking about, you know, the things that we, we didn't have, uh, it was always funny because a lot of us were trained how to be combat lifesavers, which basically meant you know how to do an IV and you knew how to do tourniquets. Um, but nobody was a medic. And so, like, if you were part of an, an, an army unit of what we were doing, which was, uh, it was an ASO unit, Area Security Operations, um, usually they had a medic on board. We didn't. We had combat lifesavers. So if the shit really hit the fan, they could do tourniquets and they could put you on an IV, but that was about as, that, that's the best care you were going to get until an actual oh. medic arrived. And uh, you, you never really thought about it until something happens. Right. Um, because, you know, five and a half months in, our team that was going to replace us and we were going to come home actually came early. And so they were actually transferring a lot of us back uh, onto, like, on-site duty um, that was that would be easy to, to leave whatever we needed to. And I actually volunteered to stay on the ASO unit because I didn't want to get stuck up in a tower or doing something where, God forbid, I end up getting bored and do something and, and get in trouble for it. Because a lot of yeah. guys were. A lot of guys were had a little too much time on their hands and were getting a shitload of trouble and ruining their careers. And I thought to myself, I'm like, you know, I enjoy doing this, so... I'm good. I'll just, yeah. you know, when it's time to go, let me know, and then I'll transfer over, and then we'll, we'll leave. And so uh, I never knew how impactful that decision would be. And so on October 16, 2006, we were out on patrol, and we were securing a route, and we were actually going back in um, so that we could have lunch. And the way the, the ASO units work is when one unit was in, another you know, there was always a unit outside. So if you came in for lunch, another unit went out, and patrolled while you were gone and then you guys would switch and so i uh we came in or we were on our way in for for lunch and i was actually thinking like oh am i gonna have spaghetti tonight or am i gonna have like a chili or a, a philly cheesesteak sandwich you know because yeah. we had this really great you know uh uh what are they called mess hall Can't, yeah exactly and uh you know they had all sorts of stuff that they would cook for us and so i was really excited about that i was super hungry and then we got called to go back out and secure a route because a convoy, it was a detainee convoy, was leaving to go out to Kuwait. And uh, they had already left. So we had to go and, and, and patrol really quickly. Well, on our way there, um, we actually had some Bedouins that stopped us midway and said that, there, that someone had come and kidnapped their son and drove off. And we had never encountered this before. Five and a half months of doing this job, and this had never happened before. So, you know, everybody's on guard. Everyone's, you know, like, what the hell's going on? And so we did, like, a, a cordon perimeter of, of security, and we're trying to find out what happened. Well, we called back to base to say, hey, there's something going on here. You know, tell them to stop. Um, you know, 
we didn't know that they had left yet. We were like, hey, delay it. There's something going on. We need to do an investigation and figure out this this area is okay. And then, then they told us that they had already left. And when a convoy leaves, they don't stop and they don't turn around. They just go. And so we decided, okay, tell them to stay in that area. We've got to go and patrol or secure the bridge. And then we'll come back later and we'll do an investigation. And so we went out we secured the bridge. Nothing happened. Convoy came through. No problem. So we're like, okay, you know, maybe this is just a weird coincidence. But on our way back, um, I happened to be the rear gunner that day in the rear vehicle. And uh, so on our way back, we actually hit a, uh, a roadside bomb. And this particular one's called an EFP, uh, elect or explosively forced or foreign projectile. And so basically what it is, is it's a shape charge lined with copper so that when it goes off, it superheats the copper and liquefies it basically. So it goes right through up armored equipment, then solidifies and becomes shrapnel. And this particular type of roadside bomb has injured and killed I don't know how many people. Um, it's, it's a dirty, dirty device. And uh, some people died just because of how it's made. It was so dirty that, you know, you got infected and just died from the infection alone. And uh, it actually ended up hit, hitting the rear end of the vehicle. It was a daisy chain of four, and only three of them had gone off. So when it went off, um, the truck... I remember I was standing up and I saw this giant dirt plume and like a small like orange flash, but I didn't hear anything. That was the weird part. Like I didn't hear anything. I just saw it. So it was like watching a, a, a war movie on TV, but it was muted. And uh, the next thing I knew, and it was late afternoon, you know, when we were, we were headed back. Yeah. And so I was standing up and I remember it going off and my hand going up. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up, I was no longer standing up, I was laying in the bottom of the Humvee, and it was, it was dark, it was, it was dusk, and so like some time had passed. And so my truck commander, it turned out he had gotten a couple shrapnel, pieces of shrapnel on his back, dislocated his shoulder and had a concussion. And it was about the same for the driver, but most of it had gone through the back. And so when I looked up, the tip of this finger had been blown off and it was just dangling. And luckily I had gloves on. The gloves were the only thing that was keeping the, the tip of the finger attached. And uh, I looked down at my, my leg and it, it looked like someone had taken a shotgun at close range and fired. And I mean, uniform was all torn up. There was blood everywhere. What I didn't know is I had impact gloves on at the time. And a piece of shrapnel had gone through my wrist and it blew out my palm taking with it bone tendon and clipping an artery and so i was actually bleeding oh, out and i shit. thought this was the worst thing but as this was the one that was the actually the most life-threatening and so they got me out of the vehicle and uh i remember when i first realized what had happened i mean i started crying like i just couldn't control it and i couldn't see and i thought it was because of the tears but it was more because i had I'd smacked my head and there was a little bit of blood it wasn't bad but there was just blood in my eyes and the more i i wiped the worse it got and i remember getting really really scared like oh god what's you know what's what am i going to do what's going to happen and then i remembered i was getting super super tired and then um amazingly enough i thought about uh the the training that we had gone through ahead of time and you know talking about how if you do get injured conserve your energy because you know the more you flail around the more you lose uh control 
the the more the quicker you are to, to lose more blood and to be more active and yeah so I told myself I was okay I gotta calm down I gotta calm down I'm getting really really tired I need to just calm down and so I got really really quiet and that scared the crap out of my truck commander he's like uh, what are you doing what, what's wrong I'm like I'm just I'm fine I'm just I'm trying not to freak out back here and so um, they finally got me out of the vehicle and luckily there was an army ASO unit that was at the uh, uh, Kuwaiti side and saw the explosion. So they came to see and investigate what was going on and they had a medic on board. And so luckily uh, that medic, and I've never been able to learn his name, um, you know, or find out who it is, but I always send out major props because that man saved my life. Um, if he had not been there, I would not be here. Yeah. Um, because I've, I've seen the, the, the medic notes, um, I lost so much blood. The fact that I'm even here is a miracle, honestly. Um, they had to put, what did they say, five to six bags of blood back in me. I mean, I, I was tapped out by the time they got me to Kuwait. And so, and I remember being annoyed at the time. I was getting asked all these questions of where I'm from and just like pleasantry stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was so irritated because I'm like, why are we talking? Why are we having a conversation right now? And I realized later on that it was because they were trying to keep me awake and talking and alert rather yeah. than just falling asleep. And so I remember going, wow, you know, I was a real, I was a dick to those guys. <laughs> like, I'm from Couchville, USA. Can you get me out of here? And, you know, but uh, luckily I, I got to come home. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about uh, religion and, you know, based off my faith, I remember one of the ways I, I, I tried to calm myself down was I, I recited the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I remember almost making a deal. I felt like I was making a deal with God. I said, uh, I said, look, you know, I understand that you've got no reason to, you know, hinder or to, to hear me out or to, to help me in any way, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't lived a perfect life, many of mine. I lived a good life, I thought. Uh, but I want to be able to say goodbye. You know, I, I just want to be able to get home and tell my wife and my daughter, you know, how much I love them and that it's going to be okay. And you know, my mom and dad, you know, and, and thank them so much and tell them how much I love them and please take care of my family. So if you'll just let me do that, it doesn't matter if it's on a tarmac in some state, as long as I can get over, see them, I'm yours. I'm all yours. Take me, no qualms, no, no arguments, nothing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm always really, really grateful because not only did I get to go home and see him and talk to him, but, you know, I, I've been here since then. And, uh, you know, I didn't initially lose my leg. Um, I did seven years of, of limb salvage, and it was horrible, absolutely horrible. I, I almost wish that I had had it amputated then rather than waiting because it was, it was misery and surgeries every year, all the time. I've had 32-plus surgeries uh, between my hand and my leg. And, uh, wow, I didn't know that part. I, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've been seven or eight years surgery-free so far, and I'm, I'm really hoping to keep that, that record for a little while longer. I've had my fill. Yeah, we're but, all hoping uh, you don't have to do that anymore, <laughs> man. Like, I think you've paid enough <laughs> forward, man. That's that. Hey, thank you, man. Thank you for your service. I don't even think I've got to say that yet. I mean, I know you and I have had talks before, but... I, I appreciate mean, it, thank brother. Thank you, man. Like, that's... I mean, you've you've paid the ultimate price, you know. You well, you lost a limb, you know. You know, I, I look the at country. it as occupational hazard, as as you know, as as funny as it sounds, because I mean, that's what it is. It's occupational hazard, and yeah. I'm, I'm always appreciative. And man, thank you for your service. I mean, just you know, raising your right hand, being there, being willing to do what you need to do, 
not for yourself but for other people you've never met I think is 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 courageous within itself you know it's the hardest regardless. part I think because you know when I was in the Navy you know granted I was only there through boot camp but you know the that's one of the hardest things I know it was for me to come to terms with when you're with a lot of other people that are all there for different reasons yeah and they raise their hand for different reasons yep you know and I mean the reality is you've got everything there from people that are being forced to be there because of the law and that we're probably going to jail and didn't have any other choice but to sign up they definitely don't want to be there but it's the lesser of two evils exactly right i had a guy in our our tech school class like that and then you have people that truly want to be there then you have the generational ones that like my whole family served and i'm you know, they're the ones that are going to be trying to go a thousand miles an hour. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then you have other people that just not sure what they wanted to do with life and yep. made that decision. So it's a uh, I know for me personally, it was extremely scary to sit and think about my life is in this quote unquote idiot's hand. You know, yep. I'm not, you know there's. There's a couple people here. I'm like, yeah, cool. I got your six. You know, I, I want to be on that team. That's exactly right. But then there's other people that are part of your team, and you're like, man, this guy could give a rat's ass. Like, yeah, yep. I got to trust this guy to, with my with my life. There was a couple of times we had to have conversations with people, and you know, the thing was is I, I don't care what you do in your personal time. I don't care, you know, uh, who you are, or what you do. You do you. More power to you. Right. But when you're in that situation, you have to be able to trust that everybody is doing what they're supposed to, when they're supposed to, because if they don't, people can get hurt or lose their lives. And so sometimes you, you had to go, look, here, here's the deal. Um, you're going to cut this out. You're not going to do yeah. this anymore. Or we're going to make sure that you're doing something other than this because we can't afford you to be a liability. And again, it, it wasn't, doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter, you know, where you came from or anything like that. None of that matters. It just, your, your character and your motivation to be here and doing what you're supposed to, regardless if you want to be here or not, you're here, you're with yeah. us. Um, you've got to be willing to, to do what you have to, because our goal is to go home. So if that's your goal, then let's let's get this job done. Yeah, I'm sure but, it's a uh, whole nother level of that when you're is, deployed. It's, it's so fast paced. I remember that was one of the hardest things I had to acclimate when I got home was it just felt like everybody was going in slow motion. And so because, you know, you're, you when you're here, you're, you're in the States and you're doing your job and you're living your life. It's, you know, you've got that choice. I'll get to that later. You know, this doesn't have to be done right now. You've got the priority level and everything like that. When you're overseas, when you're doing stuff like that, you know, everything's a priority. Everything is a priority and everybody's is running around like doing what there's, I mean, it's getting done. Stuff gets done like, you know, like crazy. Yeah. And so then you come back home and you're like, oh, I need to do this. Okay, yeah, we'll get that, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, just, you know, just, you know, come back another day, you know, and you're like, no, I need, let's just do it. Like, I'm, I'm here to do it. Let's get it done. And so that was a really difficult lesson for me to learn is to, you know, reacclimate. I'm to sure the, it helped uh, with your marriage, the though. I mean, because the wives, like, if you're getting it done right when they say it, <laughs> and I have to be reminded well, two, three know, weeks later that, hey, I uh, asked you to hang that new rod in the laundry room. Uh, three weeks ago are you I think that's uh, ever still a lesson that? that i'm learning but uh, you <laughs> Damn, know everybody's give you got credit their, there. their timeline that's important to them but no when i got injured and then got back and finally got to a stable position um you know when i was overseas i had started to develop my uh political aspirations you know when i was in high school okay. law enforcement and politics were the two things i was just really passionate about and so 
I realized, oh, you know what? I'll stay in four years, then I'll get out and I'll start, you know, going towards some political races and do some small time things and work towards big time things. And that was what I was going to go after. But this this changed everything. You know, I you know, I had everything figured out to kaboom. And now I don't know if I'm going to get to stay in. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Right. I was panicked because I was afraid that if I got discharged automatically, I don't have a degree yet. You know, I I, I can't do the job I was going to do. Like, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to support my family? Like how you know what is going to happen here? And so I was, I was scared to death. And luckily, I had a great chain of command. And so I got to stay in my full another three and a half years. Um, I was non-deployable. Um, I eventually, I got to a point where I could arm back up. You know, I could still qualify with the expert on my rifle and pistol. And uh, I really couldn't run because of my leg the way it was. So, you know, there was, there was restrictions that I had. But I eventually got into a back office position where I, I did alarm system security and resource protection for all of Nellis and for Creech. And so, you know, I, I, got, I got, you know, stuff taken care of, but I still didn't have my degree. And I was, the only reason I didn't get my degree before, I figured, okay, I'll go in, finish it up. And I was waiting for um, leadership school once you get to be a sergeant. And then that would count towards, and then I'd finish it up, and then I'd have my degree. And you were planning on being a lifer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. When I, I originally wasn't, but when I saw everybody working to save my life and, you know, from the time I got hurt to the, the hospital to the time I got out, it really made me want to stay in and do a full 20. You know, I, I was fully ready to dedicate full 20 plus years to the military. That's amazing to me because you think a lot of people that when they got put in that position, it's like, all right, I, I, I've, I've paid my price. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm done. Like. But, I mean, you see it, too. I mean, you, you look at some of the, um, I mean, obviously, I'm going to think of the more famous stories that are all Special Forces guys. You oh, know, yeah. The, um, the Brown, the Mike, I think it's Mike Brown that was the SEAL that, I mean, this guy qualified for, like, basically, like, gold team with one eye. Yep. Like, that's insane shit. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. This guy is qualifying for, like, not only has he already become a SEAL, now he's become now he's getting to be asked to be in the dev crew and like this dude's already been wounded he's got one eye yep and yet he's they don't see him as a liability like he's coming on like you exactly. know like well there and there's several guys like that that like they lost a limb lost something and then like it yeah. fires they, them up even more to where they they want to go and still prove to themselves that they can do these things. Some of the branches are a lot more reasonable now with injuries than they were back then. Because mm-hmm. um, I had to do my med board. It, it took three years for my med board to go through to, to get a decision. And originally, the local board there at Nellis was like, hey, you know what? You're good to, to stay in. You're non-deployable still, but you know you can, you can re-enlist. You're good to go. And I'm like, great. Well... Before the, uh, uh, the the wing commander and everything would sign off on it, they saw my file and said, "No, no, 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 no. This is this is too big of a, an issue. We got to send this up to to Randolph over in San Antonio." So they did, and that board out there decided that I needed to medically discharge, uh, not discharge, medically retire. And when I found out, I felt like I went from having everything to nothing in no time at all. And I was so mad, so I went and saw a lawyer to find out, you know, what I could do to stay in. And initially, he thought I was trying to get more disability because I think they were going to give me like 60% disability from the military. Um, and then you go out to the VA and you transfer it to something larger sometimes, mm-hmm. most times. But um, I said, no, 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 I'm not trying to get more disability. I'm trying to stay in. I'm not trying to leave. And so he goes, well, let me look at your file and go over some stuff. And then, you know, I'll let you know. 
and uh, he came back going, look, here's your deal. You could go and do a, a formal board and go and do a PT thing for him. And even though on paper you look horrible, in person you look pretty good. He goes, there's the chance that they're gonna go, oh, wow, actually you're better than what we thought you were. So instead of medical retirement, we're gonna do a medical discharge, which means that I wouldn't be able to go back on base. I wouldn't be able to keep my benefits. And I had a wife and two kids at the time. So it was one of those situations where I begrudgingly signed my paperwork, I medically retired, um, and then went back home and had to figure out what I was gonna do from there. And so from there, you know, I, I had I had my bad days and I had my good days, but I always had my wife propping me up and keeping me motivated. And so she helped me to uh, to get my, my bachelor's in emergency administration. So I worked for uh, a uh, fusion center in Collin County as an intel analyst. And then after that, I actually went around the country and spoke at a bunch of different venues and stuff, mentoring veterans. Um, and then after that, I worked as a, uh, a prosthetic technician. So you did like motivational speaking for oh, other yeah. veterans that were amputees and oh, stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. Other amputees, combat wounded uh, uh, units. Um, I went to several different churches and spoke at different things. I mean, all over. Um, what, what equipped you to do that? Was that more like kind of along your political aspirations, like talking to people and having those I sharing? Met, or did it help you more, like uh, getting that, past? Absolutely. I met someone who mentored me in being able to do that and actually kind of took me in. His name is Dave Reaver. He was a, a Brownwater Black Beret in the Navy. Um, and uh, he got injured by a white phosphorus grenade. I mean, amazing man. And uh, he took me in as it were, mentored me and actually got me out on the circuit. And I would go around with him and on my, on my own and with some other guys. And we would go over and speak all over the country. And uh, it was something that I really got on board for because it not only helped me to help other people with situations that were worse or not as bad as mine, but to be able to take what I've got going on and use it to help other people, it helped me every single time. It helped me to process the things that I was going through, the restrictions, the limitations, you know, the the things that were to come. And uh, it has helped me to develop a a healthy way of dealing with things, uh, healthy coping mechanisms versus bad ones. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I went through and, and, and did that and got to meet amazing people and had an amazing time. What what else really helped you with that process? Because, you know, I've, you and I have had conversations in the lounge, sharing a cigar and just sitting around and having conversation. I feel like, and, I, and I'm not discrediting and I'm not, I don't want to look past the fact that I, I know you have your bad days. Oh, yeah. And I know you had some dark times and I don't, I'm not discrediting that at all, but... I have watched you personally over the last several years, which I know is several years removed from you doing a lot of this, but what helped you get to that state of mind and and to be able to do those things? Because I feel like, I feel like you've processed a lot of this and that you deal with it better than most, you know, just that's my personal experience of knowing you. And I I want to commend you for that because I think that's very hard. You know what I mean? I know you have a great support system. I know Megan's awesome. Megan really helps you with that a lot. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, there's people with all different kinds of levels of stress and issues and disorders yep. Yep. and stuff like that. But I just feel like you've done – so maybe – I mean, I think it's important for maybe you to talk about some of those other things that helped you, if there are other oh, things absolutely. other than just yeah. that. Because I know there's a lot of vets that listen to our show, and 
I know some of them still struggle with PTSD. I know you have a slightly more open and different view about PTSD from the conversations I've heard you talking about it. So maybe you can share your thoughts on that and just kind of what else helped you because I think that's important for other vets and people to hear. Absolutely. PTSD is something that isn't just restricted to veterans. I mean, it happens to everybody. It's it's the body's reaction to an abnormal circumstance. So it's a ser- series of copanisms, coping mechanisms yes coping mechanisms <laughs> coping mechanisms that your body develops so that you don't have to go through the trauma that you went through so paranoia anxiety um you know uh, a, a separation slew, yeah, anxiety a slew of uh, you know uh, paranoia being you know claustrophobia just not being able to interact in large Depression. crowds or sounds smells can trigger somebody and it's the body's reaction to that reminds me or them or it of you know what was going on at that particular time you know during that that particular trauma so it's something that is everybody is is uh susceptible susceptible to and um for me it helped me to do the research on it you know to do my own research and really figure out what it was that i was going through why I would be fine, and in the next minute, I wouldn't be. Um, you know, why, when I heard a loud noise that I wasn't expecting, that I felt like I was going to have a heart attack, and I would cry. And I didn't understand it. And it got to a point where I was getting upset and frustrated and angry. And then the, it, it's a vicious cycle because your family, your support, people around you, they develop secondary PTSD because they see you going through and the reactions that you have, and then they start having their own reactions to That's your reactions. That's now a trigger to them of what they're about to go through with you. Exactly. So it's a vicious cycle because I get upset. I don't know why I get upset. And then I get upset because I can't explain to you why I'm upset. And then you're upset because you don't understand why I'm upset. You see, it just keeps mm-hmm. going and it cascades and it's just a giant wave of crap. And it's natural. Everybody goes through it. You know, 911 operators, first responders, someone could stub their toe and if it was bad enough for them if that's like one of the worst things they've ever gone through they can develop ptsd through that they can hear a particular noise that sounded like when they did it they'll be like oh you know that's that's post-traumatic it's it's a series of things that your body does to protect you and so it's not doesn't always feel like it's protecting you but that's what it is and for me um counseling was a big deal i made myself go through counseling i went through counseling my wife did we went to counseling together um, and ultimately I've decided that counseling is a great resource for people to use and it doesn't have the stigma that it used to. And if you think about it this way, I, I recommend to people and, and advocate you go to all sorts of counseling, you know, go to counseling. There's all sorts of services for veterans, um, military one source. Um, there's, there's, there's programs out there where you can go like give an hour is one that you can go and get counseling for free they give you a free hour of counseling then you do however many hours they've given you you do that many hours of like public service you know community service and so they're giving an hour and then you give an hour so it's an equal exchange straight off but it's to where you like if you don't have benefits or you can't afford counseling you can find ways to to be able to get counseled and so i've done i've done it all and for me being going through several different things helped me to find the things that I found useful in those and kind of put it together like a quilt. You, you pick and choose the best pieces of the things that you've gone through that have been useful and then put it all together. 
Yeah. And so with that, I've developed, you know, ways that I, I like to go drive back roads, you know, swirly, curvy, you know, straight, pretty roads, you know, that just aren't like in the middle of the city. I love driving, love going to drive. It calms me down. The rhythm helps me to think if I'm in a place where I just like overwhelmed. Um, same thing for playing video games. Now, video games can be a little bit of crutch for some people, so you gotta be careful with this. But I like playing video games that like RPG stuff where you move around and you do a whole bunch of stuff. I physically can't do that anymore. The older I get, the worse it gets. Right. So I've still got a lot of pent up energy though. So I play the game and so for my brain, it's like, oh, I'm doing all these things. So it helps me release some of that. Yeah. Same thing for I'm learning how to do like acrylic painting. And you know, just like little little things, nothing major by any means. I feel means. like you have a great teacher because I've seen the artwork your wife oh does on gosh. cookies. So yeah. I mean, yeah. I can only imagine how good she is at other things art related. <laughs> yeah. And for she, those of you that don't know, I'll let him throw out a little promo for his wife here. She has this awesome little bakery and makes amazing cookies. And screw you, Ko, for not letting me try one just because your <laughs> team was getting waxed in the first half. But I am going to get me one of those cookies. Tiny Kitchen Cakery. Go check it out. It's on Facebook. She's got her site out now. Um, my wife does amazing, amazing work. But, uh, no, yeah, she's she's a definite help. And, you know, Megan, like like you said, she's been my, my rock. Yeah. If I didn't have Megan, I'd be dead in a ditch somewhere, 100%. I mean, she has, she has literally pieced me together. When I was back home, she was the one that had to nurse my wounds. Like, when I had a hole where you could see all the way down to the tendon, she was the one that was plugging it with gauze and getting it wet oh, and, and wrapping me up. I couldn't do that. <laughs> I couldn't do that. I would relive your story trying to do that. I'd be out cold. She, she has she has gone through so much to be able to help me. And, uh, you know, I, there's nothing I wouldn't do for her. And, and my children, obviously. It It's given them a perspective that I wouldn't choose for them. It's given them a life that I wouldn't choose but I am grateful for. They've got a perspective that some adults will never have. Yeah. They, they've got a maturity level that some adults also might never get. And yeah. I'm grateful for it. But, uh, you know, it really is breaking down what you're going through, what, you know, finding out what's going on when you go through these experiences and finding out what your triggers are, uh, choosing people that are going to be able to help you, to surround you choosing a healthy support system yeah. because it is something you choose, not something you're stuck with. And uh, really finding out the coping mechanisms that don't help you. Like I tried doing a punching bag. All I did was get so amped up and, and like agitated after I was done. I literally wanted to fight somebody. So I was like, you know what? This is not for me. So yeah. I don't do that anymore. Um, finding those types of things out and, and going and it, it's all trial and error. You know, right. that's the thing. You've got to be able to try something and maybe it not work for you to figure out that it's not for you or try something and it work and you realize this is for me. I mean, that that's what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, and for me, that, that's been my life. A lot of series of trial and error. And uh, how do, how do yeah. you look at that from being challenged? I mean, obviously, you've had to teach yourself a lot of things like going through that many surgeries. I mean. You probably had to learn how to use a lot of your hand again. Oh, yeah. You've had to learn to walk with a prosthetic. Um, and I'm sure there's times you wanted to throw in the towel. Like, what do you use to stay motivated? I mean, I'm sure your family's a big part of that. But, like, what other things do you do to cope with that? Because I know there has to be, you know, for you to be able to look at something like that as a stepping stone and not a roadblock or 
you know, something you can't get past, I feel like you've implemented other things to help you with that. What, what are some of those things? A lot of times when I'm having a hard time, I've met veterans, I've met people who are paraplegics, they're literally trapped in their own body, people that are paralyzed from the waist down or from the neck down, um, double amputees, whether it's leg or, or upper extremity, quadruple amputees. Um, I've met and seen some situations that are way worse than mine. One of the things that I always try to tell myself is it can always be worse. It, it literally can. It can always be worse. And my wife, obviously, my family is a huge thing. I still allow myself to, to wallow just a little bit. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging a feeling and feeling it. Yeah. You just can't allow it to engulf you to the point where you can't do anything else. And I've had, I've had times in my life where I've been in those holes. So I've, I've been there. I think uh, that's like a different level of awareness is what you're basically describing. It really like is. To, you're, you're being self-aware of it. knowing of when you're approaching a, a point where it's going to be hard to come back from. And, you know, I've been to those places, so I know when I'm feeling it. I know when it's coming on. Um, and communication is one of the big things that I do. So I, I let Megan know, hey, I'm not having a great day today. So that if I happen to be short or snippy, it's nothing to do with her. It's all on me right now. Yeah. And so sometimes I distance myself, not because I don't want to be around people, but it's going to be better so that I don't react and I don't make someone feel like they did something wrong or something happened. Um, there was a friend of mine who, uh, not knowingly, he had no idea. I was walking out somewhere and he honked his horn and scared the living crap out of me. And I was not doing well. And a loud noise like that inside, Trigger. I wanted to bust out crying. And so... When I get upset or like tear, I get mad. It makes me mad. I don't like being upset. And so I remember whipping around because I didn't know how it was. And I gave him this, you know, eat, death, and die, you know, look. Yeah. Just like, and uh, he realized and the next day he's like, hey, I, I'm so sorry, man. I didn't realize. I was like, no, no, no. I said, I wasn't doing all well. And, you know, I gave you this look that you, you know, you had no idea. You were just innocently playing around. And so I distanced myself because I don't want to make someone feel that way. Yeah. And so, and I do the same thing for my kids. I communicate when I'm not having a great day or if I'm going through something and I'm worried that they might translate that as to them doing something wrong or they haven't done something they're supposed to. And that's not it at all. Well, you do a really good job of that because, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I think you're because you're a really good communicator. But I mean, I can think of times like even just over the last two so years that I've known you, you know, there's certain days we walk in and like we can tell by your demeanor, like, hey, he just wants to smoke a cigar and chill. Like maybe he's having a bad day. <laughs> like you, you, you're good at kind of giving those hints, those cues. I think now, and I mean, I think that's excellent that you communicate like that with your kids and your wife because it's one of those things I think some of us that know you a little better can pick up on at times it so. really does come down to one communicating understanding what your um, what your triggers are really just breaking yourself down knowing that when you're in the darkest place at some point you've got to realize okay this this isn't working so really just talking to yourself and going okay what are we doing right now? What are we going through? What do we want to be doing? You know, what is it that's stopping us? You know, why do you feel like you can't do it? And really just, I mean, break it down of the who, what, where, when, why, what, you know. Yeah. All of it. Maybe talk about this a little bit because there's something I, I heard that you said. Uh, 
I actually picked up on this watching your podcast with Biz on Go Local. <laughs> I highly enjoyed that while I was doing my show research. Because if you try to do show research on Brandon Byers, this dude is not Mr. Social Media. He's not <laughs> like Mr. LinkedIn. Like, you better kind of know him or you're not going to find shit. Like, I think he did some top secret shit at Area 51 or something. Like, his shit's wiped. But uh, you talked about a conversation with your first sergeant that I think still probably to this day is very important for you, where he told you it's not what happens to you, but what you do from here. Yeah. Absolutely. Talk about that maybe a little bit. I think that was a crucial moment for you, too. Usually there's a big ceremony when you get your Purple Heart. And uh, mine was actually done in the field, which is not done often. So, And they, they really wanted to do that. So um, they presented my Purple Heart while I was on a, a C-130 being transferred from Kuwait to uh, launch stool in Germany. And, you know, I was presented. And I, if you see the picture... My face is all fat and swollen. I'm, I'm all bandaged up. Like, I've got just, I look like horrible. Death I don't look like I'm twice. having a good time. And, uh, I mean, part of it was I, was I was in and out. Like, yeah. But I remember him leaning down. And before I left, this was the last time I saw him until after he got back from his deployment. And, you know, he is a man that, will always be an important person in my life and not just because of what he said to me but he's been a first shirt to me both professionally and personally like he has been a mentor he's been a man that I can always rely on who always reaches out to me we still stay in contact and it's just an amazing person and when he said that he leaned in and said hey it's not what happens to you it's how you react it's what happens now that has been one of my keystone things ever since because I truly believe that just because you go through something, it's not, it doesn't define you. Me being a wounded veteran doesn't define me. It's not who I am. It's, it's a piece of who I am. It's a small right. cog in a very large mechanism. It's a yeah. large machine with Absolutely. little cogs of everything that you've gone through, all your experiences. And not one experience is who you are, but is a simple piece that makes up who you are. So, you know, it helped me to understand that things that happen don't define you and it's very important to to realize when you're going through a scenario like that of that's all you identify as that's all people see you as and and it's because of whatever you're doing or what you're saying or what how you're presenting yourself and there's something to be said about realizing when that is all there is and you need to break it up you need to realize that there's more to me than that yeah and i think that's a good part of your keystone right there that helped you have the awareness that you were talking about just a few minutes ago because it's okay to sit and chew on something that oh, like yeah. Oh, yeah. not letting it consume you but com- coming to understand why you're having those feelings yep. why you're thinking this way why did that trigger me you know why did what my wife just said to me you know set me off like i shouldn't be mad or having this reaction right now like yeah. why why is that? Well, maybe I got to chew on that for a little bit. Yeah. Like, why did I let that take me over? So, man, that's that's awesome, man. I'm the, glad you have somebody like that. that you Breaking that down was one of the things that actually helped my marriage as well. Because right after I got hurt, I have heard about PTSD, but I didn't know what it was. And when I started going through a lot of the symptoms and just having things that were happening, me and Megan were fighting like crazy because I was having reactions and she was wanting to fix it. But I didn't understand it, so I couldn't explain it to her. And then 
we we literally had to break it down together because the divorce rate for uh, the military, I think, in general, is like in the 80 percentile. It's high. And then the combat wounded uh, community, it's like in the high 90 percentile. Okay. Uh, it's very high because you didn't sign up for this. Even though, you know, you said for better or worse, when one of you is missing pieces or is not the person they were or paralyzed or whatever the situation is, um, the other person doesn't Pays know what to price do. Too. And they want to help you. They want to fix you, but it's not something that they're going to be able to fix. And so it's, it's a whole new lifestyle that you both now have to acclimate to. And it is all about the both of you acclimating, not just one, because it's the both of you together. What happens to you happens to her and vice versa. And understanding that on the different levels. Exactly because right. Because no one can fully understand what you go through. I mean, like, you can describe it to you, you're blue in the face, but yep. Yep. until it happens to you, it's one of those things like you can't fully relate to it. You could try to have a level of understanding, Yep. but you're never going to fully relate to and it. And those are conversations you have to have as well. Look, yeah. I don't mean this in a negative way. Please understand what I'm saying here. I'm never going to be able to help you understand how this feels. And even if you went through it, we are two different people. Because of that, we feel and see and learn things differently. You'll never experience yeah. the way I did. Absolutely. Well, what, what, are you, what are you getting into these days now, man? What are, well, what are you doing now? So we talked know, about your background with ICC. You've moved on from that a little bit, but what, what are you doing to entertain your time and everything now? Well, I mean, now I'm kind of working on a, little, a couple of little side gigs, you know, looking into maybe doing a business on my own. And uh, honestly, I'm helping Megan with her business. You know, she's relaunched her bakery business and she's, you know, going to school full time as well, uh, getting her bachelor's in, uh, in counseling, basically in Christian counseling. And uh, she's actually going to use this as one of her, her tools as well, classes and different things, you know, because it's a awesome. good therapy tool. And uh, so I'm, I'm helping sure her out with that. there's a lot she can share with people. Oh, absolutely. And uh, also, you know, spending a lot of time with my kids. My son is going to be a junior coming up. He's about to be 16 in a couple of days. And so I'm, I'm really dedicating a lot of my time to being there for him in these really important last couple of years. You know, helping him to really understand what's going to be coming up next. What You know, I think it's important um, absolutely. To, to just to be there and I've spent the last 21 years um, having my family support me in my career so I decided I'm going to step back and support them and I'll still do my things you know I'm working yeah. on the behind the scenes and stuff like that but it, uh, at this point I'm I'm a support mechanism I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a backstage hand right now and I'm okay with that I will say it, it's taken me some time to acclimate that. I, I kind of feel like I've been disappearing a little bit. Yeah. But uh, it's just a different routine. It's it's a different thing of duties than it used to be. So, but I'm I'm loving it because I'm getting to do something for them and, and seeing the smiles right on their on. faces. Well, man, <clears throat> I think your story and showing people how you can adapt from to change and. <clears throat> And move on with your life is a, a great thing of getting to share and hear your story like well, this. I appreciate man. it. And, you know, I, I appreciate you having me on. I know that, you know, talking about my stuff can get long into the night. But uh, I appreciate you having me on and giving me the opportunity to be able to just 
hang out with you and then, you know. Yeah, man, I've looked forward to this. Spread some wisdom around, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, that's what common <laughs> sense is all about, man. I mean, people learn from hearing about other people's journeys. It's a ripple effect. You know, yeah. you say it, it gets to one person, then another, another, and it just carries on. You don't have yeah. to know where it goes, but knowing that it's getting out there, that's the important thing. What do you think, and maybe we do this two parts. Actually, before I ask you this, because I'm going to forget and we're getting short on time here. We got to talk about what we're drinking, what we're smoking. Oh, absolutely. We're, we're not drinking anything yet, but <laughs> Brandon, Brandon is a awesome cigar connoisseur. Um, you're very well knowledge in it because, I mean, you got to have one of your dream jobs, you know. Absolutely. Working not only just in a place that sold cigars, but a true family experience like ICC is, absolutely. which we talk about, a lot about on here. Maybe we separate this down, but... Uh, We'll go with just cigars for right now. Absolutely. Um, we are currently smoking the La Polina Goldies. This yes, is sir. one of Brandon and I, both of our favorites. It's in our, it's in my top five of what I like to grab. Oh, absolutely. Regularly. Absolutely. Um, they're, they're phenomenal sticks. A uh, little more on the pricey side. Uh, they are. They compared are. to what we typically smoke on the regular around here. So it's uh, one I don't enjoy all the time, but... I like to grab one every now and then. I it probably nice should buy treat. a box as many of these as I like to grab here and there. And it's just got a keep, Connecticut keep wrap it to it, so yeah. it's it's smooth, light, and has a very crisp, clean profile to it. Um, I was telling you before, one of the things I had read about it before I ever had one was that it was supposed to have like a banana nut type. I've been trying to since it. you said yeah. that. Yeah, and so you can get a little bit of nuttiness to it, which is indicative of of a, a Connecticut. You can usually get like a light, crisp, um, nutty. I get I the nut. Say, I don't get the banana. Though. I've never been able to taste the banana. So, yeah. and that's the thing about reviews. It's all subjective. That's right. the thing about cigars. Cigars are subjective to the person. You like what you like. You don't like what you don't like. Um, you cut how you cut. You smoke how you smoke, and you taste what you taste. And do it that way. And that and there's that's what you need to. Again, cigars like anything else is trial and error. And I love this because it's a great smoke that you can have after dinner. You can even have it in the morning. Um, because it's a lighter side, it's got uh, more of like a, a, a deep profile. After you get about midway, it gets a little heavier, not by much, but uh, you can definitely feel it a little bit more. But it's still, it's very clean and smooth. Well balanced. Yes. Well balanced. It's got a good earthy tone to it. The cedar profile to it enjoy. really is prominent, but it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with that. I still remember one of my first experiences with you in the humidor <laughs> when you were opening a box of the Byron's Ugh. and you started telling me about how they smell like blueberries. And I'm like, bullshit. Like a Byron, like these aren't flavored. Like you're really going to tell me something, but you're like, poema. come here, come here. And like you pulled me in and like, no bullshit smelled like blueberries. Yep. I was like, this is natural insane. fermentation. You get that blue. It almost like a blueberry pop tart. And you almost get a slight essence of it on the back draft of the smoke, but it's not infused by any means. And if you actually talk uh, to the manufacturer and ask if it's infused, he gets very upset about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would imagine so. I mean, that's got to be like probably the biggest insult you could say to Nelson. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Byron's, uh, Atabase, their manufacturing process is second to none. Yeah, to none. by all means. Yeah, I, I never get the blueberry taste. But when you first open that box, it damn sure smells like oh, blueberries. Yeah. 
Without a doubt, like you're definitely get that. It almost made me not want to smoke it. Yeah, at you, first. you start to think it's. I was like, I don't yeah. want to smoke something like <laughs> this. Smells like one of these Jamaican cigars or something like that. Like I'm, I'm out on that. One hundred percent. Well, we also got a couple others up here. I don't think Absolutely. we're going to get to them on the show, but this is the new Macanudo. This is the Mildios. I say Macanudo. <laughs> it's got an M on yeah, it. Yeah, it's got an M on it. <laughs> yeah, this one's the Mildios by Crown, uh, Crown Heads. Uh, this is one that I've always really loved because originally it had an Ecuadorian a Habano wrapper. Now it's got Sumatran as the wrapper. Really tasty, but it's got Peruvian. Have and you got to try that one yet? Oh, yes. Okay. It's I, was, I just smoked it for the first time yesterday. It's very good. The Peruvian in this, it's, uh, it's a leaf that you can't find. It's harder to get. It's hard yeah. to get a good crop yield out of. But if you can get it in your cigar, it amplifies the flavor profile a lot, and it makes it just more prominent, and it's very, very smooth. So, uh, and it, it's true to fact with the Mildios, uh, I believe that's a thousand days. It took them about three months to develop. And uh, it was actually, it was originally a uh, uh, Luciano and Crown Heads uh, combination. And now uh, they've kind of separated now that Crown Heads is doing it on their own. But it is an amazing cigar. If you ever get a chance, give it a try. I guarantee you'll like it. It's got a darker wrap to it. It's more of a medium, but it has a very light presence to it. And like I've said before, you guys have heard me say this a lot. If Luciano was involved with it, it ain't going to suck. Nope. Even if he's not still involved with it, I can guarantee you they're still taking those lessons they learned from him. Oh, yeah. And it's an excellent smoke. I would highly recommend that with coffee or a bourbon. Yeah. That is an excellent cigar. Even tequila, I think, would be good. It pairs I, I haven't well drank with just about with it anything. Yet, it really does. But it's got that full-bodied, lot of aroma. It's a good cigar. And then I haven't smoked one of these yet, and I'm really looking forward to it. This is the uh, Davidoff Yamasa. Oh, I've heard of that. I haven't I've, had one they myself. They just got them in. I haven't had this yet, but I'm looking forward to smoking this one. Well, man, we've got to start wrapping up, but there is one question I wanted to ask you before we do our typical questions. <laughs> maybe, and this is where I was saying separate it, maybe. Maybe you want to talk about in the service and outside the service. Mm. What's maybe the best advice and worst advice you received in the service? And then maybe same question outside. Best advice I got the service was you've got to make the experience your own. You'll get a lot of people who have been at one base too long or you call them burnouts and they'll really uh, saturate uh, new troops that are coming on. And before you know it, a troop that's been there a month is acting like he's been there 25 years and it, it's what you make it it really is the service is what you make it you know whether your command is great or it's not it's your goals to make there's plenty of things to do to try out for special duties all sorts of stuff and the best advice i ever got um well actually that that's one of the other best advice i ever got was when i was in tech school uh my my ti he said buyers sometimes you just got to shut up and color that has been in service and out of service sometimes you just got to shut up and color you know until you get high enough to where you can pick the colors because you're not always going to understand it but sometimes you're in a position you just got to do it and then you get to a point where you can choose the colors and then you understand why that's so true <laughs> and i think that, you know some of these things i think is why you were such a good fit at icc because man you ran that like a first class shop man and you, <laughs> you, you and whether you were having a good day or a bad day 
you didn't ask anybody to do anything that you weren't going to do. And I watched you do that with all the different people that came in and out in the last two years. Absolutely. Or so. And I think that's important, too. It is. It is. Uh, and, I mean, a leader is a follower. He's a follower of true right. Um, and, and he's, it's like you said, a leader shows what needs to be done by doing it, not saying it. And so, absolutely, 100%. And uh, I learned a lot of that in the military, but I've had some really great people show me some really great examples over my life. So That's awesome, man. All right, now to the normal two questions. <laughs> we'll see how much Brandon watches this show. He's probably prepared for oh, this. Oh, crap, no, not even close. <laughs> not even close. All right, man, so if you got to leave your children with one piece of advice, what piece of advice would that be? Character is everything. Your, your character and what you present will be a lasting impression always. Awesome. I like that a lot. All right. Now's the fun part. It's common sense. <laughs> so we like to call this segment, Give Us Your Two Cents. All right. So this could be something I didn't ask you that is weighing on you that you just want to put out there. It could be something we didn't get to talk about that you want to talk about, but it literally, or it could just be your two cents that you feel like I, I want to share these two cents and that's it. Sometimes this is a statement. Sometimes it's a story. <laughs> I, I mean, it, this goes every which direction. So literally it's your, your microphone, your chance to go wherever oh, you wow. want. With that. Okay. Um, I, you know, I think I'm going through a lot of this with my son. He's in high school and I don't think I'd make it in high school now. You know, when we went in, when we were in high school, we didn't have social media. I mean, we barely had cell phones, okay? Yeah, your whole life was not being put on display. Like, you had minutes, and, like, you couldn't text at the time because it cost too much, you know? And so, but because of all that, you know, there's just so much going on. The uh, teenagers and kids now, they are attached and into everything, you know? We had to ask people, like, and we had computers in AOL. We had the internet to an extent. We had the we Oregon start, Trail. We, yeah. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Exactly right. We <laughs> could look things up, but now it's in your face all the time, and it's always a, a, opinionated news, not factual news or anything like that. But there's a lot of change going on out there. And I think the one thing that I find both frustrating and interesting is the fact of how everybody goes around and presents themselves but gets upset if someone doesn't necessarily think the way they think or or feel the way they feel or believe whatever it is they believe the way they believe it and if there's one thing i could say it's you know the best thing about this country is i respect the fact that me and you don't see things the exact same way i respect your opinion and who you are and you do you and more power to you but i ask that in return yeah. And if that's one thing you can do is understand that everybody sees things differently. Everybody feels things differently. And just because you see or, or say or believe or identify or whatever as whatever it is you feel and want to be doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to understand or see it the way you see it. And it's all about communicating, you know, allowing people to understand where you're coming from. And if they don't feel the same way, cool absolutely totally understand you know what i respect your, your your stance to feel that way yeah but i don't judge you for it you know i i don't think you're any less than i am because of that and just because we don't 
stand on the same platform doesn't mean you're any less than I am. So I think that's, it's very fascinating to me, everything that's going on out there as far as, you know, what I, people identify as or uh, groups they're a part of or judging this group because they're not like this group. Well, that's the best thing about this country. You have the right to feel, say, speak, believe, whatever you want. And not everybody else has to do that. Just give it to your neighbor, too. Exactly. You know, I've always told my, my kids, um, mutual respect is given the fact that you are a human being. I respect your, your ability to believe and say and do whatever you'd like. Everything else is earned. So if you want my respect in any other way, then present yourself and treat me like a human being, and I'll treat you as such. And the more we get along, the more I'm going to respect how you feel and what you do and it not be some argument it can just be a conversation it doesn't have to be complicated no it can just be a conversation exactly and you can disagree and still be friends it, like you, you don't have saying, to be on the same page on i'm gonna have everything. to agree to disagree with you yeah that that is so simple but so profound i agree to disagree but i respect your ability to to to, to feel that way Absolutely, man. That's a great segment. I love that we're ending on that. Like, I think that's excellent. Well, man, I want to thank you personally for coming and doing this. I know some of the stuff you talk about is not always the easiest, you know, and it's a, it is a story that I think is very important for people to hear. But thank you. I want to thank you for coming and being so open and just sharing your experience with Eric Bakes. I do think it's important for people My brother, to hear I can't that. thank you enough. I, anytime. Yeah, always, and I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, we'll have to do something again when you get uh, get on down the road. And, uh, Sounds like plan to me. I, I know some of the things you have cooking, and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk about those again soon. Absolutely. Well, guys, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, this is it for this week, and next week, I'm proud to announce we're doing our last show. Uh, Derek and Cherie have been so gracious to let us record up here at the Monarch Stag. I hope you guys will come up and join us for a cigar or drink after the show. Next week's going to be the last one up here. ICC, the remodel's finally done almost completely. (laughs) So we get our old room back. It's been revamped. I'm really looking forward to shooting up there in my super comfortable normal turf. Um, Not that I have not absolutely enjoyed this time here at the Monarch Stag. Hope you guys have enjoyed this different setting and the shows we brought to you. Next week, I'm super excited because this was the show we had scheduled for when I got sick. And he's coming on finally. But uh, we are going to have the protector of the star with us next week, Mr. George Teague himself. So I'm super looking forward to hashing out about this. I've watched all the stuff on it, hearing about when he uh, let Tio know what it's about to stand on our star (laughs) at the Texas Stadium. So he's a great guy. I'm looking forward to it. I think you guys are going to really enjoy that show. And Mr. Teague's going to stay up here and have a cigar and have a drink with you guys. So if you're in the area, come up. You can sit in the background, watch the show live if you'd like. And we're going to, we're going to hang out with you guys. So I hope you guys enjoyed the show. See you guys next week. Peace. Later.